Well, when you were in elementary school, you were asked this question. All of us were asked this question. What do you want to be when you grow up? I asked my son Titus this morning, Titus, what do you want to be when you grow up? He said, I want to be a doctor and a ninja. And so I'm going to have to find a double major for that one. But, but all of us were asked that at some point. So the answers, the typical answers for an elementary age kid is, I want to be a doctor or I want to be a lawyer, maybe a firefighter. In my mind, I had my heart set on one thing. I wanted to be like my idol. It actually was an obsession of mine. Every chance that I had, I watched this guy's every move. I actually ate the things that he ate. It was the breakfast of champions. I walked like he walked. I dressed like he dressed. I even sang a song about him. And the song went like this. I'm not going to sing it. Maybe. Sometimes I dream that he is me. You've got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move. I dream I groove. Like Mike. If I could be like Mike. Growing up in the 80s and 90s, Michael Jordan was my hero. And even though I was a diehard Laker fan, he didn't come close, Magic Johnson didn't come close to the mystique and to the allure that Michael Jordan had. Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time. I don't think there's a debate. The guy won six NBA Finals championships undefeated. He's got several scoring titles. He's just the greatest to ever play the game. When I think about Michael Jordan, I think about what made Michael Jordan so great. Some say it was his athletic ability. Some say it was his skill set. It was unmatched by anyone. Some say it was his work ethic. And while all those things contributed to MJ's greatness, there's one distinct quality about Michael Jordan that I think heightened all of his natural abilities. It was his mindset, the way he thought about the game. It was the way he thought about his teammates. It was the way he thought about his opponents. That's what elevated his game and made him the top talent that he was. It was his competitive mindset. He wanted to win at all costs. Nothing and no one was going to get in Michael Jordan's way of climbing the ladder of success. But if you've heard his Hall of Fame speech, if you've maybe read some of his biographies, you'll realize that that killer mentality, it may have been good for winning championships, but it was really bad at winning relationships. In fact, Jordan's obsession with being the best destroyed many of his relationships. That's because a mind driven by self will ultimately destroy relationships. A selfish mindset will hurt the people you care about the most and it will leave a trail of broken relationships in the rearview mirror. That kind of mindset will ruin a church. And as those that have been transformed by the gospel, we should have a completely different mindset. Not a mind fixated on self, not a mind obsessed with rising to the top and being better than everyone else. We need to have the mind of Christ. Jesus is the greatest of all time. There's not even a close second. He always has been. He always will be. And the question I want us to consider this morning is this. What kind of mindset did Jesus have? What was the driving force behind all of Jesus' words and all of his actions? Why did he love the way he did? Why did he 
Why did he live the way that he did? I think it all starts with his mind. So today we're going to open up to a passage of Scripture that both magnifies and models the mindset of Christ. It's a holy mindset, a perfect mindset. It is the mind of humility. So please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to examine verses 3 through 8. Philippians 2, 3 through 8 gives us two exhortations to obey as we seek to walk in step with the gospel. Two exhortations to obey as we seek to walk in step with the gospel. The first is that we're commanded to be Christ-minded in verses 3 through 4. And then the second we'll look at is the command to consider the depth of Christ's own humility in verses 5 through 9. So what we'll see this morning is how this command to have Christ-minded humility is modeled by Jesus himself, and it's demonstrated. It's demonstrated in self-imposed, self-denying, self-giving, and self-sacrificial humility. If we're to obey God's command toward humility then we have to consider the depth of Christ's own humility and then follow in his example. Now before we jump into the text, I think it's important just to build a little context for you. Many of you have read the book of Philippians. Um, Why did Paul write this letter to the Philippians? Well, the purpose for him writing the letter is because he wants to encourage a church that he dearly loves. The believers in Philippi had shown great affection to Paul. He was extremely grateful for their devotion and for their generosity toward him. He's writing to them because he's concerned that division in the church is going to still their joy and disrupt their unity. Those two themes are very prominent in the book of Philippians. Some would say that Philippians is all about joy or it's all about unity. Well, what's the perfect way to diminish joy? What's the perfect way to cause disunity in the church? It's selfishness. It's pride. And so Paul is going to command them to do the very opposite, to be humble, because nothing builds and strengthens and unites a church more than humility. And nothing destroys a church faster and more certainly than pride. So Paul is going to direct their attention off of themselves and onto Christ who is the supreme example of humanity, humility. And in just six verses, Paul lays out some of the most glorious truths regarding the person and work of Christ. But even though we've got some of the highest theological um, pictures here in Philippians, even though we have some of the highest Christology, it is meant to be extremely practical. And we know that because of the context. And so when we look at verses 5 through 11, it's connected to the previous and very important imperative found in chapter 1, verse 27. There Paul says this. Some would say this is even the theme of the whole letter. Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You can sum up Paul's desire for the church right there in that command. You can sum up Paul's desire for all the churches, even today, in that command, that we would walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul now is going to flesh that out for us. And so we're going to start at verse 1, and then we're going to work our way towards our first point, the command to be Christ-minded. Look with me at verse 1. 
Paul says this, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, the if here, the conditional clause here, it's better rendered since. And so what Paul is really saying is, since these things are true, because these things are true, right, because you have encouragement in Christ, because you have comfort and love, because you have full participation in the Spirit, because you have affection and sympathy, because all these things are true of you in Christ, then be unified. How do we know Paul is calling for unity? Look at all the different ways he says here that he wants them to act. He says, have the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord. Literally, he says, be same-souled, have this like-mindedness. And our question now is, well, what does he mean, have the same mind? Does he simply mean that believers are to agree on everything? Is that what being of the same mind really means? I mean, just think about it for a second. Even in the church context, there's so many different personalities, even in this room. On our pastoral staff, there's so many different leadership styles, so many different ideas about parenting and about schooling, about cultural engagement, and then don't even get us started on politics. We can't even decide, do we have uh, daylight savings time or do we not? How in the world are we supposed to think the same way? How in the world are we supposed to achieve this unity that Paul is calling for? Is that even possible to have this kind of harmonious unity? Just this morning, Demo in his class is talking about all-mail and post-mail and pre-mail. How do we agree on that type of stuff? Before we go down that road, I think we have to ask, is that really what Paul had in mind? Is this same-mindedness, does he mean that he wants us to look and act and think the same way? And I would suggest no. He tells us what the mindset is. It's bigger than just liking the same things. It's bigger than resolving personal conflicts. It's even bigger than resolving theological differences. See, it's less about agreeing on a particular topic, and it's more about our attitude. It's more about our attitude toward one another. See, Paul wants us to have a common disposition. He wants us to be unified in our perspective and our behavior toward one another. He wants us to have an attitude that will enable us to worship and act in unison as a body of believers so that our everyday lives will be worthy of the gospel. He wants us to be marked by an attitude of humility. Now, Paul, he defines what that humility is, and he does that by sandwiching how we're to live and how we're not to live. Okay, and then right in the middle we have what humility is. And so negatively he says, don't act like this. And then positively he says, no, act like this. Okay, so first is the prohibition. Look at verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Now the word nothing in the Greek, it's a very interesting word. It means nothing. What Paul is really saying is there is no area in your life, zero where it's acceptable to be selfish. There's no time, no situation when it's okay for you to be all about you. Now that's a problem. It's a problem because by nature we're so inwardly focused. And then you add to that the fuel of the world, constantly bombarding us with temptations that feed our selfish human nature. Self-help, self-esteem, self-love, 
Just this week, I opened up my email, and I get lots of junk email, but I saw all these advertisements for the things that I deserved, cheap airfare to exotic locations, offers to luxurious hotels, vehicle upgrades, beauty enhancements. Just reading through your email, you might convince yourself that life is all about me. It's all about my dreams, my desires, my wishes, my comforts, my body, my fun. You need to take care of yourself. That's the message of the world. Treat yourself. Paul tells us, don't be all about yourself. But he actually says more than that. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition. What is selfish ambition? It's sometimes translated rivalry. Think about the rivals that you had in school. Did you want the rival team to be successful? I mean, if... Something's wrong with you, maybe. But if you, if you have a rival, you want those guys to lose. And if you're mean-spirited, you want them to lose bad and be embarrassed. That's the concept here. Paul actually used this word a little bit earlier in chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says this. He was on the receiving end of selfish ambition. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, and here it is in verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. See, selfish ambition is the kind of self-seeking, self-promoting attitude that creates and even enjoys causing division. It's ugly. It tears people down. In this case, there were some who were so envious of Paul, they wanted Paul's notoriety, They wanted his acclaim. They wanted all the love that he got. And so what did they do? They wanted to tear him down. Tear him down so they could lift themselves up. And that's what he means by conceit. Conceit is calling attention to yourself. Glorying in how much better you are. Or it's glorying in how much people are worse than you are. The word he uses there is kinodoxia. And I want you to remember that word. It literally means vain glory. They wanted the praise, but it was empty praise. It was worthless praise. Selfish ambition, empty conceit, it has absolutely no place in the church of Christ. Step on others so you could be elevated. Smearing people's names so that you can look good, that is destructive. And it will never produce the kind of unity and peaceful harmony Paul is calling for. And so that's the negative command. He says, don't be like that. And now... We get to the positive command. He says this, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility is a a compound word, and it means to think or to judge oneself with lowliness. Paul does a great job of defining that for us in the book of Romans. There in 12.3, Paul says this, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. We're to think rightly about ourselves, not just about ourselves, but we're to consider ourselves in relationship to other people. You are to count others as more significant, the text says. Some translations say you're supposed to think about others as better than you, and I don't think that means that we got to walk around like Eeyore with this cloud over our head. I'm no good. Everyone's better than me. It's not talking about better in that respect. Paul is not advocating for false humility, 
False humility is actually true pride. Now, what Paul has in view here is that we count others as more significant than ourselves. We view others as more important. We give them the priority. He's saying you need to consider another's needs before your own needs. So how do we do that, Paul? Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Not just your plans, not just your well-being, not just your family, as good as that is, not just your finances, not just your reputation, not just your happiness. Let me ask you this. Do you spend all of your money, all of your resources just on you? When you have free time, does that free time go to you? Paul says it can't be like that. We need to take the focus off of ourselves and prioritize other people. When you think about it, Paul, he's not asking for something new here. He's actually just repeating what Jesus said. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. I don't want us buying into this philosophy that we need to learn to love ourselves before we love others. Why? Because according to Jesus, you love yourself just fine. The natural default is to be self-focused. The Bible here is telling us that the same preoccupation we have with ourselves, the same attention we give to ourselves, the same energy we give to ourselves, we need to give that to other people. You want to be mentally and physically and spiritually well. Do you want that for other people as well? Do you want that for others? Do you give others that kind of consideration? Do you give others that kind of priority that you give yourself? How many times have you come home from a long, hard day, tough day, challenging day, people were challenging, and all you want to do is just relax? Just lay down on the couch, maybe turn on the TV, just kind of unwind for a little bit. And it's at that moment that one of your kids comes and says, Daddy, Mom, will you play with me? I can't tell you how many times I've failed because it's all about me. You don't know what kind of day I had. I just need my, I just need my daddy time. <laughs> Turn off the TV, put down your phone, give the priority to your spouse, Give the priority to your kids. Do whatever it takes to be willing to give yourself to others. Prioritize their spiritual good. That might mean that you need to just give someone your attention. Look them in the eyes. Spend some time with them. It might mean that you have to suffer some loss. So be it. Just imagine if we obeyed that one command in our marriages, in our parenting, in our relationships, how much better would our relationships be? But that's so much easier said than done. So the question is, how are we supposed to do that? Especially when it seems so contrary to our human nature. Well, Paul tells us where it all starts. Look at verse 5. He says, have this mind. That's where it all begins. Literally, the text says, you think this way. The NASB translates it, have this attitude. Another translation says, have within yourself the same disposition of mind. 
The command here is to set your mind, to set your heart upon something, to strive after it with all of your might, to be active in seeking after that particular thing. See, the idea is not to just give it a casual thought, but it's a thinking that involves your affections, it's a thinking that involves your will and all of your mental capacities. I have a, a long history of doing foolish things. In fact, I can hear my brother's voice in my head quite often. You know, when I was young, I used to do a lot of dumb stuff. And my brother would often say, Dom, what were you thinking? And you know what my response was? I wasn't. I wasn't thinking. Paul doesn't want the Philippian church to be careless in their thinking. He wants them to be transformed by the renewing of their mind. Why? Because the mind is the starting point of all of our actions, all of our attitudes. It's the driving force of the things that we do. And so if we're to be others-oriented and if we're to prioritize service to others, we must have this right mindset. And notice, it is a collective mindset. Yes, individually we're to adopt this attitude, but Paul says, have this attitude among yourselves. It is a corporate mindset. The NIV translates it, have this attitude in your relationship with one another. And that right there is the right idea. Paul wants to see a whole community of believers transformed by the way that they think. And I'd say, man, wouldn't it be so nice if we can just snap our finger and just change? Dom preached it. Maybe tomorrow morning you'll just wake up and you'll be it. That would be fantastic. But it's not going to happen. So what do we do? Oh, how we need Jesus. How we need to look to Jesus. Notice Paul says this attitude, it's yours in Christ Jesus. Now, your ESV, it translates it, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And it kind of captures this positional idea. Right? But literally it says, have this attitude, which also in Christ Jesus. I think the language and the context suggests that the way that we adopt this mindset is that we look to him as our pattern. Yes, positionally, in Christ, we have his humility. But what Paul is getting at here is that believers need to consider Christ and then imitate that same attitude that Jesus had. That's why other translations say that you were to have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. See, this is the mindset that we are to pursue. True humility will not come as a result of looking down on yourself. True humility will come as a result of looking at Jesus. And so now what Paul is going to do, he's going to launch us into the supreme example of humility. He's going to take us all the way back to eternity past, and he's going to move us down and down and down and down further into the descent of Christ's humility. And so we look here now at our second command. It's the command to consider Christ's humiliation. Starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're going to see that Jesus' humility was self-imposed. Christ intentionally humbled himself. He did that by denying himself. 
renouncing his rights, renouncing his privileges. And that all was displayed in the self-giving incarnation when he came to earth as a man and as a servant. And we see the greatest demonstration of his humility, which we sang about, in his self-sacrifice, giving up his life for those whom he came to serve. So Christ's humility, first of all, it was a self-imposed humility. It says in verse 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What do I mean by self-imposed? Often, you and I, we acquire humility in a passive sense. Our humbling is what happens to us. I have a good friend who uh, quotes a verse to me, probably more often than I like, but the verse is this. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And he usually tells me that when I've got my chest out high and I'm walking around like a little peacock. He's putting me in my place with what the Scripture tells me. My wife does the same thing, but she doesn't quote Scripture to me. She just looks at me. Right? Some of you men know that look. It's that pride comes before the fall look. See, when I experience humility, it's often because I am humbled. That's not the case with Jesus. Jesus isn't humbled. Jesus humbles himself. He's actively humble. He chose to be humble. You think about it. If anyone has a right to boast, if anyone could say, look at how glorious I am, it's Jesus. And the text says that he did not consider his equality with God something to be held on to. The root word for this verb here, to count, is ago, which means to lead. Jesus led his thinking in a certain direction. It was a calculated thinking, a deliberate thinking. He initiated it himself with no outside influence. This is our Lord, thinking a certain way about himself, thinking a certain way about others. So Paul says in the same way that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that you are to count others as more significant than yourself. Think the way that Christ thought. If you are to obey God's command to be humble, you can't wait to be humbled. You have to humble yourself. You have to choose to think a certain way. You can't wait for a feeling. You can't wait for the perfect opportunity. Choose to love. Choose to serve. Your default is to do neither. If you don't make up your mind to love others, guess what? It's not going to happen. If you don't prioritize others, it's not going to happen. A Christ-minded humility is a self-imposed humility. It initiates doing good to others. So Christ's humility wasn't just self-imposed, but it was also self-denying. Verse 6 again. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Now the big question here, which has been debated all throughout church history, is what did Jesus empty himself of? What did he deny himself of? What did he willingly surrender? And it is a loaded question. Had me shaking as I was preparing to preach this. 
in order to answer the question correctly, we have to first be clear on who Christ is before we determine what he emptied himself of. And I'm going to try to simplify it for you. I think Paul's point is actually quite simple. Jesus, being both preexistent and divine, he temporarily renounced all his rights, all his privileges as God in order to lovingly serve you and me. You know, two weeks ago, Pastor Scott was behind the pulpit, and he said how important it is for us to get our Christology right. This is the text that you cannot get wrong. So important. Why is it so important? Because it teaches that Jesus was both preexistent and divine. He's not a created being. That is crystal clear in the Scripture. You can just flip anywhere into the Gospel of John, close your eyes, and land your finger on a text, and Jesus there probably believes that he is both divine and eternal. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, that glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am, ego me, the self-existent one, the eternal one. Jesus' pre-existent deity is all over the scriptures, and I usually like to prove that by his hands. His hands. Jesus shares the same honors due to God. He shares the same attributes of God. He shares the same names of God. He shares in the deeds that only God can do. And Jesus shares the seat of God's throne. Don't let anyone tell you different. Before Jesus existed as a man, he already existed as the second person of the Trinity. Now the ESV, it translates this, he was in the form of God. But Paul intentionally uses a participle expressing the ongoing, continuous action of existence in the present tense. The text literally says, existing, not was, but existing in the form of God. And that helps us understand, before Jesus became a man, he was God. And after becoming a man, he continued to be God. He didn't stop being God when he became a man. So you say, okay, that seems pretty convincing. I get that he was preexistent. I get that he was divine. But why does the text say he was in the form of God? Doesn't that make it sound like he was like God? Doesn't it make it sound like he was not actually God? Maybe he was just sort of divine or God-like. It's not what it's saying. The word translated form here is the Greek word morphe. You've heard this word. We've used this word before. We get the word metamorphosis from it. When I think of the word form, I usually think of what happens on the outside, the shape of something. That's what our English word conveys, just the mere outward appearance of something. But the Greek word morphe, it refers more than just the external appearance of something. It refers to Jesus' essential being. Hebrews 1.3 tells us he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. See, Christ doesn't merely reflect God's glory. He is the radiance of God's glory. I preached this maybe two years ago now. The transfiguration on that mountaintop where Jesus unveiled his inner essence. 
He wasn't reflecting that glory. The glory emanated from him. He was the originator of it. So no, Jesus wasn't just God-like in his outward form. He was existing in the morphe of God because in his very essence, in his very being, he is God. Jesus' divinity is also clearly seen in the phrase, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. This doesn't mean that grasp like in the sense figuratively he didn't understand it. No, it means it quite literally. His, his divinity was not something that he clung to with his fist. It's not something that he was holding on to. His preexistence was not something that he was holding on to with his iron grip. What I find interesting about this is you can't hold on to something that you don't possess. You can't hold on to something that you don't have. And so what that tells me, when Jesus let go of it, that he actually did have it. So now, with that understanding, what did Jesus have in his possession, and what was it that he gave up? Jesus tells, him, tells us himself, so we don't have to guess. In John 17, 5, he says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What did Jesus have? All glory, all honor, all praise. It all belonged to Christ. It belonged to the preexistent divine Son of God, and he willingly let that go. He renounced all of his entitlements, all of his divine prerogatives, he let go of. And we have to ask, why? Why? To serve you. To serve me. That's Paul's point. Look at what Jesus gave up to serve you. So when you think about this, no matter what position you hold, no matter the honor and respect you think you're due, you need to consider all that Christ gave up to serve you. Are you the patriarch of your home, maybe the matriarch? Are you the king of the house? Maybe you're the older brother, the older sister. Are you the boss of your company, the captain of your team? Are you a ministry leader? No degree, no promotion, no achievement will ever elevate you to a seat above Jesus Christ. And what did he do? He relinquished all of his rights, all of his privileges for the sake of serving people. Don't you think we should do the same? If you're having a difficult time letting go of the respect you think you're due, look to Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ. Consider what he did. If we just applied that mindset in our everyday lives, it would transform the way that people view the church, the way people view Christianity. It would make our relationships so dramatically different. So Christ's humility, self-imposed, self-denying, but it was also a self-giving humility. Here we are, we're a month away from Christmas, and once again we'll be reminded just how far Jesus stooped in the exercise of humility. This whole idea of the incarnation, it's wrapped up in this idea of emptying. Here's the word, the word is kanao. It means to make void, and one translation said, he made himself nothing. I think that's what the text is saying. The text is not saying 
that Jesus emptied himself of his eternal deity. It's not saying that he set aside all of his attributes. If he did that, like the kenosis theory suggests, then he would no longer be God. It's not that Jesus didn't possess his divine attributes. It's that he didn't access his divine attributes when he could have. What Paul means is that Jesus divested himself of his position, he divested himself of his prestige, and he became a human being. That's how he made himself nothing. He laid aside every prerogative as God in order to take on all of the limitations of humanity. He made himself nothing, how? By becoming a man. Think about that equation with me real quickly, okay? Because it it seems kind of offensive, to be honest. He made himself nothing equals becoming a man. And you say, well, isn't that offensive? My answer is yes. How could God stoop so low to become a man? How could he condescend to the level of a man? But that's not all he did. It says he emptied himself, verse 7, by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. He didn't just become a man. The text says he took the form of a doulos, a slave. A slave is someone who has no property. He, in fact, is property. He has no life of his own. He belongs to his master. And that's what the Bible says, how Jesus came to earth. Not like a demigod. He's not like Maui or Thor. He's not making people bow their knee to him. No, Jesus didn't descend from heaven in royalty. He wasn't carried around on the shoulders of servants. No, he came serving others, washing people's feet. Jesus himself said this in Mark 10. He says, look, to the disciples, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, the only way, the only way that Jesus was able to give his life as a ransom for many was if it was a certain kind of life, if he was a certain kind of man. That's why Paul makes this very important distinction here. He adds that Jesus was born in the likeness of man. Likeness here doesn't mean he was like a man, but he wasn't really a man. Jesus fully participated in the human race, which means that Jesus had a human heart, he had a human brain, he had human lungs, He had everything else a human being had. We often say he had fingers and toes and had to blow his nose. Jesus was like us in every way, with one great exception. He was not sinful like man. Paul is extremely helpful here in Romans 8. I think this is helpful. He says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son, and here it is, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Oh, how similar and yet so unlike Jesus is from us. 
Jesus is the second and greater and better Adam. What I find so fascinating when we go back to the garden, Adam, he was not equal with God. But what did Adam do? He countered equality with God, something to be grasped. And as a result, he ushers all of mankind into sin and into death. Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus was equal with God, but the Bible says he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. It's that kind of humility that produced a perfect life of obedience. It was that kind of humility that made him an acceptable sacrifice. It was that kind of humility that reversed the curse and provided a righteousness that you and I could never attain. Think with me of the depth to which Christ stooped, leaving his throne in heaven. When we're singing these songs, I'm envisioning Christ on the throne in the midst of all the angels receiving praise. Christ left that. The creator coming into the creation. The eternal finally constrained by time. The omnipresent limited to a place the all-powerful sovereign brought to a feeble baby in a manger. All that perfect praise from the angels to what? To the disrespect, to the mockery, to the abuse of sinners like us. Never has someone been so rich and become so poor. What a gracious gift the incarnation is. Emmanuel. God with us, but not just as a man, as a servant, giving himself in humble service and love, but it even goes one step further. Christ's humility was self-imposed, it was self-denying, it was self-giving, and it was also self-sacrificing. Look at verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is where we get to the lowest of low. Jesus lowers himself by becoming a man. Then he lowers himself more by becoming a servant. Then he lowers himself more by being subject to death. And he lowers himself even more, not just to death, but by what the Bible describes, the worst kind of death, death on the cross. There is no greater descent into humiliation than what Jesus willingly did at Golgotha. His incarnation, his servanthood, his sacrificial death, all of that directed by what? Humility. At the cross, Jesus not only provides the supreme example of humility, but it's the sacrifice of his perfect life that provides the enablement for this humility. He enables it by taking away our sin, by giving us the Holy Spirit, by convicting us of sin, and by empowering us with the ability to actually change. Is there a more beautiful picture of humility than in the gospel of Jesus Christ? What a mind Jesus had. A mind absorbed by the glory of God. A mind absorbed with the good of others. So when you listen to a message like this, and you ask yourself, how sacrificial should I be? How humble should I be? To what extent, to what limit should I lay down my life for others? 
Just look to Jesus, the author of life, sacrificing his own life for your sake. Jesus, the sinless one, death had no claim on his life, and yet he willingly took on our sin and died a death that he didn't deserve to serve you and to serve me. He was the only one with the power to create life, the only one with life in himself, and he gave that up to serve you, to serve me. Why? Why? Why did the preexistent divine Son of God humble himself in such a profound way? I just want to give you two quick reasons. The first is obedience. The second is love. Obedience to the will of the Father and love for others. Jesus willingly, completely subjected himself to the will of the Father, and he did that in all humility. Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is full subjection and faithfulness to the Father's will. Nothing less. That is what true humility is. And he did it out of love. Love for his bride. Do you realize that you have been saved because Jesus loves you? He came to earth because he loves you. You've been adopted into his family because he loves you. You've been redeemed because he loves you. You've been given an eternal home to be with Christ forever. Why? Because he loves you. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this. Then what? He laid down his life for his friends. Romans 5, 8, but God, he demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the greatest demonstration of humility, and he did it all so that you and I would do nothing out of selfish ambition and empty conceit. He did it so that you and I would count others as more significant than ourselves, He did it so that you and I wouldn't be so consumed with our life and our plans and our future and our health, but we would consider others. Do you see how this awe-inspiring Christology is meant to transform the way that we think and the way that we live? Look, you and I, we can't stand at the foot of the cross and say, look how great I am. It's all about me. The cross and our pride are incompatible. Calvary will not allow you to insist on your own way. If Jesus, the only one worthy of all honor and all praise, could have that kind of mind, how in the world can we be proud? How can we be selfish? Jesus humbled himself to the point of death for you so that you would humble yourself for others. St. Augustine maybe one of the greatest theologians in church history, he said this, if you should ask me what are the ways of God, I would tell you that the first is humility, the second is humility, and the third is humility. Not that there are no other precepts to give, but if humility does not precede all that we do, our efforts are meaningless. So true. How dramatically different would our lives be, our world be, if we adopted Christ's mind of humility, 
a self-imposed, self-denying, self-giving, self-sacrificial humility, a mind fixated on the glory of God and the good of others.